Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And I'm Shannon Bond. Shannon, very exciting. We're doing something new today. We have a guest on the show for the entire time. Her name is Caroline Webb. Caroline, say hello. Hello. Delighted to be here. Okay. Uh, let's introduce you for anything. Uh, you're a trained economist uh, turned management consultant turned book writer. That's right. Yes. I'm on, I think, my fourth career at this point. But there's a common thread about behavior. About behavior. Yeah. Behavioral economics, behavioral psychology. What am I leaving out? Neuroscience. There's a bit of neuroscience in there. But yeah, anything that uh, helps us understand better how people behave, why they behave the way they do, why we behave the way we do. Okay, great. So the reason uh, you're a guest on our show today for the entire episode is that you've got a book out. It's called How to Have a Good Day, for which you seem to have read every single (laughs) behavioral (laughs) science paper of the last like 20 or 30 years. Well, they're all very interesting, you know. (laughs) Okay. So for our listeners, uh, that is going to be the first topic on the agenda, Carolyn's book, Caroline's book, How to Have a Good Day. Second, we're going to talk quickly about positional goods, why status chasing matters to the economy. And then we're going to explain to you what positional goods is for those of you like me who didn't know until Cardiff told you. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, (laughs) I probably just lost like half of our listeners just by saying positional goods. Uh, Let's just stick with chasing status, why it actually matters quite a bit to the economy and why it's related to so many Americans, especially in the middle class, not having enough money to cover an emergency. We'll get into that. Uh, And then, of course, long form recommendations to close the show. So stick around. Here we go. Caroline Webb, the book is called How to Have a Good Day, Harness the Power of Behavioral Science to Transform Your Working Life. Uh, Okay, here's where I want to start. I want to get very meta before we actually jump into the book itself, because the book's theme is how behavioral science can be used to make you more productive and happy at work. But at the beginning of the book, you write that you had to apply a kind of skeptical lens, a skeptical filter to all these research papers that you were reading. There were something like six or 700. Mm. But we know in economics and psychology that a lot of things that we think now might later be overturned, Mm -hmm. right? Um, That not all studies are going to be robust to new evidence. So how did you go about choosing which studies you used uh, to write the book? It's a nice question to think about because, you know, you... The, the scope of the book, How to Have a Good Day, covers such a broad range of qualities of what might make you happy from one day to the next. And then you apply neuroscience, behavioral economics, and psychology to that, and the scope is enormous. So what I tried to focus on was really the studies that have been replicated again and again. Now, of course, even with replicated studies, you find that there are, there are issues that surface. So I just tried to do as much reading as I could of the actual papers, looking at the sample sizes, looking at the the type of work that was done, and applied a bit of a personal sense check. You know, does this feel 
as if this is getting to the heart of the matter. And some of the some of the some of the findings, in particular in the area of priming, very interesting body of work, which is about how we might be subliminally influenced by the cues that are around us. You know, there's a lot of uh, worry about the studies that are created that are that have been conducted in that space. But I always looked for the core, which seemed to be insurmountably true, that was so true about human nature that it was unlikely to change. But that said, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in ten years' time I need to revisit uh, revisit the science. But there were a few things how I to took out. Had to have a better day. Had to have an even better day now that the science has advanced. <laughs> but yeah, th- there were several areas where I, I really trod especially carefully. Uh, and one of the one of the areas was priming. There was a, there's a whole new debate that's happening about uh, the components of willpower. And in the end, actually, I took that out of the book because I felt that that was about to become a big area of debate, uh, and I felt that I wasn't sure enough of the the safe the safe territory in that. So it was a really active debate I had with myself almost every day. <laughs> And giving yourself plenty of room to write a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. How to have a good night, Mike. <laughs> so as you mentioned, I mean, this book covers a lot. There's everything in here from how we should think about you know, approaching meetings or our emails um, or our relationships with our coworkers and uh, the spaces that we work in and uh, you know, everything to then how to be confident, how to exude confidence. Mm. You know, huge amount of stuff here. You know, one of my sort of takeaways finishing this was like, wow, if I decided I was just I wanted to go on a project to like overhaul my working life, it's kind of exhausting. There's a lot in here. So <laughs> what do you I mean, what would your, your sort of advice be for where, for where to start or, you know, is this the sort of thing where, you know, you can kind of pick and choose depending on what resonates with you, you know, in your working life, the issues you want to concentrate on rather than trying to take on kind of the whole task of remaking yourself? Yeah, I'm nodding frantically to that last bit. I, <laughs> absolutely. I think... You, you know, each of us has natural strengths. Each of us goes through different periods in our life where it's helpful to work on different aspects of what we're doing. And I actually wrote the book quite carefully. It was a bit of a, an intellectual jigsaw puzzle to make this work. But I wrote the book so that you could read it in any any sequence. So the chapters are quite small and they're quite bite-sized and practically focused. If you've got a difficult conversation coming up, you can jump to chapter nine and read the chapter on managing tensions and get a few uh, pieces of really practical advice on that. So yeah, I mean, I I find that different people tell me, oh, part five is really where the action's at, or part three is really where the action's at. It really depends on where you're coming from. I hope there'll be something in in it for everybody. So in the amount of time we have, we definitely can't get to all of the science in the book, right? We can't get to all 600 papers that you... Um, So I I thought we'd choose some specifics and then we'll include uh, some links and other things that people can look for uh, in the, on Alphaville when we, you know, release this episode. You include some work by a few of the giants in behavioral economics, you know, Dick Thaler, Dan Ariely, Danny Kahneman is in there, psychologist turned economist, I guess, whatever you want to call him. I want to look at one specific thing, though, because I think it raises some fascinating questions about how we should behave at the office, not just how do we get better, but how should we think about like ethical issues as well. Processing fluency, Mm. right? This is kind of a fancy term for if something is simple and clear, we are more likely to believe that it's right. Yes. Okay. We should be on guard for that because just because something is simple and clear doesn't mean that it is right. Okay. On the other hand, when we ourselves are seeking to influence other people or to convince them of our point of view, it's better to keep things simple and clear because they're more likely to buy it. This to me is uh, kind of brings up a fascinating question, right? We have these biases that we should be mindful of and 
So in our own individual behavior, right, we're trying to kind of screen them out, right, to see things clearly and mm -hmm. objectively. But when we're trying to influence other people, <laughs> uh, we're sort of, it feels a little bit, it feels a little bit icky in a way. Like how yeah. should we think about the idea that we're maybe exploiting other people's cognitive biases while being on guard to make sure that our own cognitive yeah. biases don't lead us astray. It's true. So part four of the book is on thinking and part of doing your best possible thinking and being your smartest and most creative is, of course, being aware of your own biases and understanding the subtle influences that we're always exposed to, whether we are conscious of it or not, and being more mindful if you're making a big, important decision to take a step back use a cross-check process, as I call it, to, to just ask yourself a few more questions. And then, as you say, you turn this around. Part five is about influence and having an impact and getting yourself heard. Of course, you know, the same things that make you susceptible to influence are, of course, the same things that you want to be exploiting the other way around. So maybe the problem is with the word exploiting, because that makes it sound manipulative. Right. And I mean, I think it's all about your intentions, right? If your intentions are benign, your intentions are good, it's helpful to understand what makes a message land well. And, you know, sometimes people do say, you know, is behavioral science essentially manipulative? You're sort of understanding how people work and therefore you can, you can affect them. I'm like, well, actually, that's happening all the time anyway. <laughs> you know, we're all influenced all the time. So why not at least be more conscious of it? Why not at least understand why one of your messages might land and why another might not? Um, I can't obviously, you know, guarantee that every single pe person reading the book will have good intentions. <laughs> so it is possible that they could use part five for ill intent. But I, I prefer to assume that people are well-intentioned and uh, <laughs> and that their, their intentions in influencing others are largely benign. <laughs> I, I brought up the related confidence heuristic to Shannon before we taped this, and immediately Donald Trump sprang to mind, oh, right? The confidence yeah. heuristic being similar in that if you see somebody acting with confidence, yeah. you're more likely to think that they're correct. But of course, we've seen that confident behavior when that confidence is not quite earned as in the financial sector before the crisis can be a recipe for catastrophe, yeah. you know, um, especially if they end up getting a lot of people to follow them. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, overconfidence is probably the mother of all biases. It's essentially saying, you know, I, I don't know what I don't know. <laughs> and I, I, I'm just, I, I think that so many of us actually have a small amount of that every day. We, we assume that we see the world as it is and actually our perceptions are really very subjective. Um, so, yes, I think you know, real wisdom comes from recognizing that very little in this life is truly black and white and that it's always worth asking yourself an extra question a, if, if, the, if the stakes are high. A quick follow up on that. So mm. how, how do we prevent ourselves from falling prey to not just a confidence heuristic, but to mm. a lot of these other biases that we already have? You want to give us mm. one of the ideas in the book that's a good way to avoid yeah. uh, being vulnerable? Well, I think... In a lot of it is down to self-awareness. In fact, I mean, in some ways, that's the meta theme of the book, self-awareness, the fact that with a, a bit more understanding of why you think and feel and behave the way you do, you actually gain some control over things that feel uncontrollable. So I think, you know, when you're making an important decision to, to one of the things I like is to recognize if you're using absolute language, what I call absolute language. If you're saying never or always, or even saying things that are terrible or awful or brilliant or amazing, it's always worth just noticing, getting better at noticing when you're using extreme language and just saying, is that always so? Is that never true? Is that 
truly brilliant. And just asking yourself that extra question, language can be a great signal, uh, whether it's in yourself or whether it's uh, looking across the room and listening out for it. Because of course, you know, groupthink is such a powerful, powerful thing. We all want to be in harmony with the people around us. And so, you know, whenever you hear everybody, people say, it's obviously the case. We all agree, don't we? It's worth just asking, catching that language and just checking the opposite is, is not true. One of the areas uh, that you discussed that's sort of near and dear to my heart as a writer is uh, the question of productivity <laughs> um, and particularly the question around the, 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 what you talk about around procrastination, which is another area um, where there's a bias that that if we have a little bit of self-awareness, you yeah. bring up that we can point out, which is essentially that you know, we tend to be biased towards our present self rather than like the benefit of our future self. That's right. I love this, that this one sort of data point you had from a study, which is that people who are shown a digitally aged picture of themselves would then you know, given the asked how much money they would save out of a you know a theoretical thousand dollars save more money yeah. you know because you're actually just putting that frame in mind just thinking about tomorrow as opposed to like my needs of today absolutely fascinating but you know so, so beyond you know keeping a picture literally of your future <laughs> self uh you know on your desktop i mean what are some of the ways you know just like on the day-to-day getting through especially just those grinding tasks that we all have as part of mm-hmm. our jobs that yeah. are the things that you really just you want to put yeah. off you want to put off well, there's so much advice out there on procrastination it's almost overwhelming you know yeah. just about every website has their list of 10 things you can do to overcome <laughs> procrastination. Shows you the scale of yeah <laughs> i really liked the fact that if you go back to behavior economics you there's one thing that's at the heart of this as you describe it you know very well is present bias it's the mm-hmm. fact that we are naturally geared to weigh the present more heavily than the future and so if a task costs us effort now that's it's going to be very hard for that not to overwhelm any sense of future benefit mm-hmm. so one of the things that you can do and really just sits behind every uh, effective procrastination busting strategy is to shift that cost benefit analysis so the more that you can make the costs of action now feel smaller the more that you can feel the benefits of future wonderfulness that flow from this action that you're about to take the more you can boost that then the more that you're helping your brain actually just see see uh, the picture in a more favorable way so for example i mean here's a really really super simple thing when we think about a task that we're procrastinating on often it feels too big to tackle you know we might have something on our to-do list that's just you know, we don't even know what the way in is. So mm-hmm. we just avoid it again and again. The more you can break something down into the tiniest first step, and really the tiniest first step is tinier than people often think it is. <laughs> so if I say to someone, so what's the smallest step that you could take in this, um, this say, report that you've been putting off writing for five months, say, and they say, well, I suppose I need to write an outline. It's like, okay, but what's really truly the first step? Uh, well, I need to open a document and name it. <laughs> <laughs> What's truly the first step before that? Yeah, and, and so on. You know, well, I need to actually decide that there's 15 minutes this afternoon when I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. And the more you sort of break it down to the really the truly smallest first step, which might be as little as getting an email address, then you're just much more likely to have your brain feel that actually this current effort doesn't loom so large. Right, right. Game theory is a topic that anybody who's ever taken Econ 101 yeah. uh, will come across, yeah. right? You tie it to the idea of reciprocity and specifically mm-hmm. reciprocal disclosure. Yeah. Uh, what should we know about those two things? Yeah. Well, I always like game theory perhaps uh, more than most areas of economics because it did suggest that there was some uh, psychology to people's behavior when they were interacting with others. And uh, this particular bit of, um, bit of research suggests that we are very, very deeply wired for reciprocity. And 
you know, as human beings, when that sense of reciprocity is violated, it's processed as um, either something like a threat or we have to work very, very hard cognitively to overcome our sense that we've been treated unfairly. So this is quite interesting in the way that it plays out in relationships because if you think about your most trusting, most open relationships, they're the ones that have a two-way flow. So they're the ones that where you feel that you can open up to someone else and they can open up to you. Now, if you open up to someone else, if you say, I love you to someone and they don't say it back, it feels awful. And so there's a lot that flows from this understanding of reciprocity and the importance of reciprocity, not just in business, but actually in the quality of your interactions with people. In other words, if you want people to open up to you, you need to open up a little bit to them. And uh, that's that's been something that, you know, is sometimes a little counterintuitive for people who are you know quite buttoned up at work to understand that if they want people to you know to warm towards them they have to warm towards them the other way around yeah i i like the point though in the book that involved going first that if you show your own willingness Mm. to disclose something about yourself then everybody sort of loosens up automatically I think about this most often in the context of failure and assigning blame, mm-hmm. where if you're trying to figure out what went wrong and then solve the problem, a lot of people are automatically very defensive because they don't they don't want to be the one blamed for everything. Yeah. But if somebody just finds like maybe even just the one partial thing that they actually did screw up or could have done better, raise their hands and say, hey, yeah, I screwed up this thing. My bad. I'm sorry. Everybody else calms down a bit loosens up and says, yeah, okay, fine. We can just worry about, we've gotten the blame part out of the way. We can like deal with solving the problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's what, that's what, that's the kind of thinking that it inspired in me when I came across that passage. Yeah. I love that. And I think that also links to some interesting research on uh, something known as affect labeling, which is that if there is, um, if there's something that's stressing you out, it's really remarkably interesting how naming it, labeling it, drops the level of activation in your brain's threat defense system. And uh, it's interesting if you're in a meeting and there's tension in the room to simply say, things are feeling a bit tense, aren't they? Should we take a pause? Just drops the level mm-hmm. of angst in the room. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that you know some, some of the advice in the book points towards a certain boldness that's backed by research in how you can shift the tenor of a whole discussion just by knowing some of these things. Okay, the last topic we have time to talk about is about how to gain creative insights, right? And there's one idea in particular that I want to discuss here, which is stepping away, right? Taking a break, mm -hmm. concentrating a lot on something, and then leaving. What happens when we leave? Well, this is one of those areas of the research that is definitely emergent and in flux. I think neuroscientists are still still working very hard to understand what happens when our brain is supposedly at rest. One thing that is, I think, very clear from the research is that when we think we're resting or stepping away, we're not suddenly not thinking at all. What's happening is that when we step away, there is uh, processing and encoding of the information that we've just been exposed to that appears to continue. So that when you take a break and return to something, you often return to it with fresh insight. Some of the research suggests that you have to have an intention to come back to the work in order for that mm-hmm. background processing to happen. Oh, so like that, like your mind has some kind of subconscious encoding process, but only if the mind somehow knows that you plan to yeah. keep so working some on study, it. Some studies have, have, have shown that. And, you know, in some ways that makes sense to me. But I think it's in a way, you just have to think about 
the insight that you get when you've slept on something. And you have to imagine that what you're doing in stepping away and taking a break and then returning to a problem with fresh eyes is, is almost like a mini sleep <laughs> where you're allowing some processing to happen. And certainly the research is pointing in that direction. Shannon, you know my campaign against open plan offices? <laughs> We're okay. all very familiar. I think, I think we can tie this idea to the problem with open plan offices, which is that it's really hard to take a break and step away from work if everybody around you is yelling and screaming and interrupting you all the time. You make our workplace sound really much more active than it is, I have to say. It, but, I, I don't I don't because I don't think the issue is necessarily that people are like it's like the loudness. I just I think what happens is in some ways if we had offices where the doors were closed and you were working you were in the office the door closed and then you were gonna like step out into the kitchen or wherever. That's more it's like almost for me I think about it as like the physical space rather than like the to, to me, to me, in an open plan office, not only is everybody constantly interrupting you, so you can't get the kind of focus that later leads mm -hmm. to the insight while you're resting in the first place. It also makes it hard to take that break because yeah. there's just a constant buzz. Mm -hmm. We um, have to be more deliberate about it. Let's say um, so. You know, having an enormous pair of headphones that you put on, an enormous timer on your desk, which shows that you're perhaps in a period of focused concentration these are things that i've seen work really well i've you know friends have told me they work haha -ha. <laughs> obviously that's shannon what I do has too. a pair of those she looks like one of those people directing traffic on like the <laughs> airplane sold, runway sold for aircraft. Yeah. yeah i mean to the point where i would keep them on even if the batteries ran out just to yeah. kind of you know to signal that i was working and i think also it, it, it is about being more deliberate and saying okay well fine i know that I know that I work faster and smarter if I single task. Mm -hmm. In that case, I need to put a bit of effort into thinking about how I'm going to do that, what right. uh, structures I'm going to put around me. I know that I think better if I take regular breaks and that my decision making will improve. Okay, so how do I actually physically get up and go for a walk, even if it's just, you know, to the kitchen and back? And there's a scheduling aspect in it too, just of, of like planning, knowing, giving yeah. yourself that amount of time, which again yeah. goes back to procrastination. <laughs> You're not leaving everything for the last possible moment so that you can have the, the ability to step away. Yeah. And, and I think I, I, I'm always trying to encourage people to think small, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you think, oh, I have to kind of take an enormous break in the middle of the day to clear my head and it's going to be this grand, you know, in, <laughs> insertion into my daily schedule, it's less likely to happen. If you recognize that actually the research suggests that even tiny amounts of physical activity, just getting up and going for a very short, brisk walk can improve your focus and your mood. Well, OK, then I can take the stairs rather than the elevator. Mm -hmm. And that might be enough. Caroline Webb is the author of the book. It's called How to Have a Good Day, Harness the Power of Behavioral Science to Transform Your Working Life. Caroline is actually sticking around. I'm just repeating her name so you know who wrote the book. Uh, that was <laughs> Thank fun. Thank you. Okay, let's go on to our second topic, positional goods. Shannon, you and I were struck by this piece in The Atlantic by Neil Gabler from a few weeks ago. The main point of the piece was that 47% of Americans couldn't come up with $400 to deal with an emergency without selling something or borrowing the money, or they simply wouldn't be able to come up with it. That's based on the Fed survey out last year. The right. piece he, was, he sort of identifies this as, you know, it's like a certain level of, I mean, he puts it as financial impotence, essentially, right? That you just can't tap that kind of liquid. Yes. And he also savings. he also uh, identifies himself as one of those people yep. who wouldn't be able to come up right. with the $400. Right. And despite the fact that he's I mean, he's a writer, he's had, you know, he's college educated. A successful writer, right. a book author, a published book right. author who's had a good career, who right. writes for The Atlantic, that mm -hmm. kind right. of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, he, we're not talking about like sort of the working poor here. We're talking about this sort of 
this appears to cut across demographics right. and all sorts of things. Exactly. And in his case, he, he kind of chronicles a lot of the financial mistakes that he's made. And he sort of defines them as sort of very human inclinations, right? Mm -hmm. That we have a kind of natural tendency to want to pay for certain things, especially if we see other people being able to afford them and paying for them. So in his case, it had to do a lot with his kids, right? He paid for really fantastic universities for his kids to attend. He bought his daughter a very fancy wedding. He had, I think, a second home for some time, and yet he finds himself with very low liquid savings at any given time. I don't want to talk as much about uh, the plight of the middle class in this particular segment. I actually want to talk about something called positional goods, right? This is an economic term, and it just has to do with our tendency to buy status objects, right? Positional goods are goods that you buy in order to signal your relative status, Okay. Now, this isn't a clear-cut term. It's not a clear-cut topic because some things you buy both for their practical uh, use and also they are positional goods. So think of a house, right? A really big, fancy house. You need shelter and you use the house for shelter and you also you know, need a place to you know, raise your kids and things like that. But maybe you bought a slightly nicer house than you needed with the two-car garage mm -hmm. or whatever, and maybe you bought it in a really nice neighborhood, and not just because the schools were good, but also because you know, you're know you flagging something when you say, I live right. in this fancy neighborhood or whatever. The reason I wanted to talk about this was because I had spoken to an economist who studies consumption behavior. His name is Amir Sufi. And he told me earlier this year, or at the end of last year, I can't remember, that figuring out a way to model the importance of positional goods um, from an, a macroeconomic standpoint, is sort of a frontier that economists need to get to because we're not there yet. So we know that at the individual level, positional goods matter, right? You and I, all three of us really, at some point have bought goods that probably are nicer than they had to be, right? We probably could get by with still having a flip phone. I'm pretty sure we but, all have iPhones. Yeah, yeah. But we all have <laughs> iPhones, you know? Um, and so uh, I guess uh, I, I want to figure out how, number one, how we should think about this, and number two, I want to think about why we haven't figured out a way to adjust for, you know, how we look at the macro economy in general to take this into account. But can I ask a quick question? I mean, yes. did, what did he say? Why is it that it's, it's something that's not well studied or well understood as part of macroeconomics? I, I think it's probably hard to model for some of the reasons that I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Rather than just taking a survey of a neighborhood or of a small sample of people, how do you say, well, this is how much money is being spent on positional goods versus this is how much money is being spent for like the traditional reasons right. that economists think people buy things for, right? right? That it's, you know, that they're chasing incentives, mm -hmm. they're being rational, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's not so simple to build a macro model out of behavior that's studied by microeconomists, right? And we I do that for other things. It's just not easy. Yeah. And I imagine it's also like there's across categories of spending things differ, right? That would be considered positional goods, but like it's hard to sort of have something that you can apply across all of those different. We're, we're talking about cars and education and mm. consumer goods, right? It, it, it is mathematically difficult. I mean, back in the nineties, <laughs> in prehistoric times, uh, <laughs> when I was an economist at a central bank engaged in forecasting, you know, the, the equations to to model an economy are complicated, but they're still essentially pretty simple compared with real behavior. And whenever something 
really interesting happened. So, for example, in the UK, there was this period where there was a windfall. A lot of people who had uh, savings with a particular type of financial institution got a windfall when they converted into banks. And then there was this money flowing into to people's pockets. And the equations, the standard equations, couldn't couldn't cope with how we would model what would then be happening to people's behavior. Would they spend the money? Would they save it? And so you had to take that off the model and then, you know, think about it separately. So it is it is challenging, especially when you're looking at status goods where, you know, really what you're talking about is multiple types of utility. Mm-hmm. So economists like to think of the utility you get from an object. Well, you know, you certainly get say with a phone you get the ability to make phone calls but the utility that you get also is the sort of signaling and the f- feeling of belonging so it's it's not even just status it's also the fact that you have the same phone as your friends and that that makes you feel part of the tribe and these are very hard things to quantify and therefore to model sure and, and yet they still seem to matter the, the economist that i think that has looked at this more than most is robert frank his argument is that too much spending on status goods draws money, diverts money away from spending on goods that are better for long-term productivity growth, right? Education, infrastructure, those kinds of things. And so the economy ends up being skewed in a way that's not really optimal. But there's also, Mm. I guess, a more philosophical aspect to this too, right? Which is a lot of our societal institutions are geared towards enforcing a, a certain amount of personal accountability, right? So the obvious ones are like in, in criminal, you know, in criminal behavior. So if you steal something or if you attack someone, you go to jail. It's a lot harder to know how to apply that kind of a standard to something like this where, yes, it's a mistake, but it also seems to be a very common and a human mistake. So if you're going to design policies Do you design policies that also reinforce that standard of personal accountability, which I don't think we just want to get rid of, right? Or do you design policies that go along with human behavior? So does that mean, you know, forcing people to save more money? Do you, uh, you know, have stronger standards for who can borrow against their houses or who can buy big or who can take out mortgages bigger than they should? I, I don't really know the answer to that question, and I'm not sure that societally or even the economists who've thought about this have come up with a good answer for how to do that or even a framework for thinking about it. Mm. And interesting, again, to set that alongside the research, which is very compelling about the fact that beyond a certain point, you know, money doesn't buy us happiness. Right. And that actually, if we're going to spend money, it really is much better spent on experiences than on on objects. That that's you know that 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 kind of spending really does actually boost our feelings of well being and often connectedness to other people. And that is what comes up uh, in in the uh, in the research as as really sort of boosting your happiness. So yes, goodness. I mean, it, would there be a, a way of directing economic policy to encourage people to spend more on experiences rather than objects? That's pretty interesting territory. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> or maybe not. I don't really know because like, then you also get into issues of personal freedom and, and yeah. paternalism yeah, and, and right. nudging and yeah. things like that. Yeah. Final question on this topic, Caroline. Um, you studied research that kind of crossed all the disciplines, mm-hmm. right? All the behavioral disciplines. In terms of economists and psychologists and sociologists like coming together do you think there's a scope for more collaboration there or do you think that everybody's going to stay in their little silos and not be as brave as you were and kind of oh. jump across the various disciplines I don't know that I was brave I was just very curious let's say <laughs> um but I think that you know I know a lot of individuals who 
find it hard to box themselves into one particular discipline. And actually, you know, there are lots of people who are defining themselves as neuroeconomists or uh, mouthfuls like neuropsychoeconomists, maybe not that, but... <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but Psychoeconomist is a totally different thing. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what I am. Um, yeah, so I think that uh, I think that in reality, the most exciting, many much of the most exciting research is emerging at the boundaries of, of disciplines. I think that's true, actually, in general, in research terms. I think perhaps the challenge is, of course, universities are organized around faculties. So it really puts a little bit of um, onus on academic administrators to be flexible in allowing collaborations across boundaries. And I think where that's where that's possible, where you have uh, faculties that are allowing those collaborations, wonderful things are happening. Okay. That concludes the bantering segments of our show. Uh, <laughs> but before we go, uh, as always, we have long form recommendations. Caroline, you're our guest, so why don't you go first? Oh, thank you. So there is a new documentary which uh, Dan Ariely has made, uh, which is called Dishonesty, The Truth About Lies. And a lot of his work in the last few years has um, moved into looking at why we tell lies, why so many of us tell lies. And it's a fascinating documentary that uh, looks at why we do it, the, what the implications are. Uh, for ourselves and for organizations and, and policymakers. So I definitely would recommend digging that one out. And isn't isn't his theme actually not why so many of us tell lies, but that all of us yeah. each day we tell all at do. least a few lies yeah. even when we don't realize yes, it? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And yet we think of ourselves as honest people. And he's interested in the sort of the difference between our, our self-perception and the, the truth that we also know about ourselves. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Shannon? I'm going to recommend uh, something that makes me really happy four times a year when it shows up in my mailbox, which is a rather obscure uh, publication called Desert Oracle. It is the brainchild of Ken Lane, who um, some of our listeners might know as a political blogger. He used to run one cat for years and years. And uh, he got out of the rather unsavory business of political blogging, maybe, maybe missing out on this year, but that's neither here nor there. And he now lives in Joshua Tree in California with his family. And he puts out this strange little publication four times a year called Desert Oracle that is sort of it'll have sections on like animals of the desert and weird myths and stories and essays on like driving through Nevada and aliens and Bigfoot and all sorts of things. And it's really quirky. It's only in print. You, you can subscribe to it. And it's and really delightful. And it has delightful. a lizard on the cover. Yeah, this current issue has a lizard on the cover. It's so fun and strange and very different than anything else that I would read a uh, publication. Hmm. That might be my favorite recommendation of yours to date. Right? I also a nice <laughs> combination of like quirky and intellectual oh, yeah. uh, and obscure and it's also about the desert, and I love the desert. And so. it's about the desert. Hmm, which is great. Uh, okay. What about you, Cardiff? I am recommending a Slate Money Gabfest episode where the hosts, Felix Salmon and Kathy O'Neill, interviewed Margit Venmockers, one of the first and still one of the few female venture capital partners in Silicon Valley. And the discussion ranged across a lot of things, including like the very broy culture of Silicon Valley, misogyny why a lot of people in Silicon Valley tend to use this kind of very illusory, optimistic language, it actually has more of a rationale to it than I think a lot of us realize. And she explains why. And so anyways, I, I think this was a, 
a great episode because this is somebody who doesn't speak to the media a ton, and she's also somebody who actually knows the place inside and out. So it was very revealing, uh, and I really recommend it. And that is today's show. Uh, Shannon, you want to start closing us out? Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of the show. You can give us a call and leave a voicemail at 917-551-5012, or you can send us an email or voice memo to alphachat at ft.com. You can tweet us. I'm at Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L. And Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia. We'd love it if you go on iTunes and leave a review and rate our show. It helps other people find the show and it tells us what we could be doing better. We'll put notes, including our long-form recommendations, at ft.com slash alpha chat. And special thanks to Caroline Webb, our first ever full episode guest. This was fun. What an honor. Thank you so much. Come back and do it again soon. I'd love to. The book is How to Have a Good Day. I would recommend it to everyone with one exception, our producer and editor, Amy Keene, only because she has never had a bad day anyways. <laughs> okay. Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. <laughs>